Welcome to the What If Podcast with your hosts, Spencer Worth Davis and Ryan Copperwood. Still asking them all, like, what you know? This is Ryan and Spencer with some UFOs. I mean, aliens or whatever you call them. We be out here, we just UFO balling. Uh, we got weird shit on deck, so come through and protect your neck cause you gon' get abducted too and if you don't like us then we say fuck you it's the what if podcast what's happening bro bro oh you know I have not had any close encounters and I'm pissed. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling today. Same day, same day. Every day. We uh we just recently got off of our uh, our radio show and Spencer was still railing about his lack of being abducted. I'm doing everything that you would <laughs> possibly do to get abducted. It's not working, bro. I don't know. I don't know what else I need to do. You know, Chris some- Chris was telling me that people with hazel or green eyes get abducted more frequently. People who've had Family, a uh, family history of sightings get abducted more frequently. He, he never finished that list because I interrupted him with some bullshit about a 3D printed duck leg. But <laughs> he w- he was going down the list, and I was hitting every one. Um, speaking, I, I guess speaking of that, now would be a good time for us to say that if you want to hear that conversation about oh, yeah, 3D sure. printed duck legs, uh, we got more new Patreon supporters this week. Uh, thank y'all for supporting. We are. <laughs> patreon.com slash what if podcast uh yeah we, we i can't tell if he's saying outa or out here so i'm i'm gonna use it, use when it interchangeably. One yeah, i like yeah. that i yeah. like that uh but yeah we do actually we do two episodes a week and if you're listening to this episode you're hearing one of those episodes uh and if you are a patreon supporter you get the other one that comes out every week so and this we do, week chris cogswell from the mad scientist podcast yes, and yes. rob christopherson Podcast extraordinaire, famous yes. dude from Our Strange Skies podcast yep. joined us and talked about mostly UFOs and aliens, but also duck feet and, uh, and a whole bunch of other weird shit. Birds who have mastered fire, <laughs> burning, barbecuing their meat. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. Rob was also uh, Rob was also guest uh, a guest on Astonishing Legends this week, which was he sure was. He did a hell of a job talking about the whole uh, Louis Elizondo, Harry Reid. Tom DeLong, New York Times UFO stuff. Yeah, we did an episode on that. Uh, end of was it end of last year. Nah, I don't, it's like last yeah. week of December, I think it was. Like the, whenever that stuff came out, a couple days later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so those guys are on on the Patreon episode this week. Um, but that's not this episode. This is about the third man factor. And it is. What if you climbed the mountain and your buddy died, but then a ghost talked to you? <laughs> I think that's the name of it. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't really read all of our titles just from the initial <laughs> Apple like <laughs> podcast apps thing anyway, so we might as well make them as long as we think is funny. What if a ghost told you how to get down the mountain? <laughs> what if uh, what if there's somebody else in your house? You gotta keep an eye out for any zany, wacky characters <laughs> that pop up. We sure do. Uh do you want to do you yeah. want to kick things off with yeah, like sure, a, sure, what sure. the what the what the hell is a third man factor, right? Eh? <laughs> what in the fuck was that? <laughs> what in the fuck was that? Yeah, the third man factor is basically um something that people experience in very stressful and often life-threatening situations in which they will sense the presence of a person who is not actually there. Right. right. And sometimes receive information uh usually 
they will hear a voice giving them, perhaps giving them instructions on how to get out of whatever predicament they're in or reassuring or comforting them in some way. Encouragement. Encouraging them in some way. And it, it happens often with uh, mountain climbers who are maybe, I mean, you're sort of always in a life-threatening situation if you're climbing something 25,000 yes. feet tall. Yes. Divers. Um, divers. Hikers. Hikers. The, I mean, we're going to tell a story about a gentleman who survived the uh, the World Trade Center attacks yes. uh, September 11th. So any, really astronauts, any, astronauts, pilots sometimes, um, people at sea. So a, a variety of situations, but usually it's a solitary or uh, with a small group of people and some sort of life-threatening situation. People will experience a sensed presence is what it's generally called. And a, a lot of the information and stories that we're going to be talking about come from a book called The Third Man Factor, written by John Geiger. Geiger! The Geiger. Shout so, out Geiger! So I guess let's Hell start no. with, with some of the stories. Because um, that'll also give you a better sense of what of exactly what we're talking is. about here. So before we before we get into a, a specific story, I just have a couple questions. Was mm-hmm. Was Geiger... Was Geiger like the first person to... No. Document this? No. His is just the most popular version of the documentation of this? Yeah. So the name comes actually from a T.S. Eliot poem in which he wrote, Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. Mm. And he was referencing another story that we're going to talk about, but he's referencing uh, John Shackleton or John. He's referencing Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic expedition. Such a badass name. So Ernest Ernest goes to Antarctica. (laughs) So uh, one of the first or one of the most popular documented cases of this was Ernest Shackleton's expedition to cross the Antarctic continent on foot. Sounds like a super big mistake. In which he, yeah, it, it didn't go real well for them. And he experienced this third man factor, and then the name came from T.S. Eliot referencing it in one of his poems. Got it, got it. And sometimes uh, this is also referred to as the angel effect, uh, often because people... um, People will ascribe religious significance to it depending yeah. on their uh, their own experiences and yeah, and some people beliefs. right exactly, and some people have um, posited that some of the stories we're going to tell might be um, fodder for where like stories of I had a guardian angel come from, yeah. um, hence the angel effect. Really should have pulled some Touched by an Angel sounders for this show. Ooh, some Roma Downey. It's a little late, I guess, uh, but you guys can, you you guys can imagine them. Insert your own, okay? Yeah, imagine yeah. what that would be like. Just like while we're talking, just throw throw an episode on in the background. Can someone can someone take a, a picture of Spencer and I off the internet and just like put put lit halos of light just around Just Photoshop us? us into a still from Touched by an Angel, please. <laughs> did, did you see the... The, whoever it is it that, that tweets memes at us of the dumbest shit that we say each week. Oh, yeah. Is it Allie? Uh, that sounds right. I think it's Allie. Shout, Did, out, shout out to her. I, I gotta, for, hold on. I got to pull this up because it was it was so stupid that I don't totally believe that one of us said it last oh, week. Oh, I believe And I don't remember the context in which we said it or which one of us said it, I'm, but it was... If I remember correctly, it's... <laughs> are we gills? Are we gills? 
Can, we were talking about space junk. One of us said, are we gills last week? Can we breathe underwater? Are we gills? I think, yeah, I, I think. Why were we talking about under, was I talking about space whales or something? I did that for a minute. We did talk about whales. I don't know. Or maybe it was another episode. Maybe it was the episode before or something like that. And maybe She's, she was just catching it, up. It is Allie Becker, Allie Becks on Twitter. And she says, and this week in Allie memes, dumb shit from what if pod. I th- so I don't, I don't know. I guess I, I mean, I, I, I remember s- which one of us said that or what in the fuck we were talking about. I barely remember what the fuck was that? <laughs> when we, when we go back and listen to it ep- or when I go back and listen to an episode from like a week ago or two, I, I'm like, oh, I'm hearing this for the first time because even though I was well, in the room and present for that entire conversation, I remember very little of it. I edit and upload all of them and I don't even remember that, but I guess we're just dumber than I could have imagined. I certainly believe it was said. I will say the first <laughs> one that Allie memed was of me saying some really dumb shit that I meant. I think Are We Gills was maybe said in like a, is this real life? Are We Gills? Like I think it might have been said in a joking tone. I mean, that's probably giving ourselves too much credit. That's true. It's not like we haven't said a ton of dumb stuff. Uh, in the past also it was over a photo of uh it, it the was evil fish from finding nemo yeah whatever well, his not name evil was. but the the og fish in the tank in finding nemo. i don't remember finding nemo how could you i watch it at least once every <laughs> night <laughs> <laughs> all right ron de francesco oh are we not ta- telling the shackleford story or are we getting to that one later we'll, we'll, we'll do it all right uh, i want to start with ron though all right all right that's fine Wait, you don't you don't like Ron's story? No, no, I do. I just you had already mentioned the sha- the, right, the Shackleton we'll, story, we'll, so I didn't know if we wanted yeah, to go you're right. You're right. For continuity's sake, we'll we'll discuss. Yeah, because we are regularly concerned with the continuity. We'll here. discuss Ernest Shackleton's story first. That's what? the worst name I ever heard. No, it's not. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. In August of 1914, Shackleton was attempting to cross Antarctica on foot because he is a crazy son of a bitch. Wasn't it? I guess he's dead now. He was a crazy son of a bitch. Wasn't it accidental though that they had to cross on foot? No, that was their goal. It didn't. There, nothing about it went as planned. But that was their original goal. I thought. I, I thought the the version of it I read was that their like their ship got trapped in ice and they were forced well, to leave. If it. you would let me tell the story, okay. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead I would go ahead. get to that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Before they even got to Antarctica, their ship got stuck in some ice. So they were sailing across the sea to As get to the actual <laughs> land part of Antarctica. Yeah. And before they could get there, it was August. I mean, they should, it sh- oh. shouldn't have been that bad. And before they even got there, they got stuck. And after being a f- adrift for 10 months in the ice, they finally had to abandon their ship. How much, how much supplies did you have to have on board to be like, Oh, this isn't going as planned. Guess we'll hang out for a fucking year. Right. They spent 10 months just not even being able to navigate because the ice was just pushing them wherever it was going to push them. They were drifting for 10 months. Also, and there are 28 guys on this ship. At that time, all of your loved ones presume you're dead. Well, I don't know how long they anticipated this journey taking. I imagine it was going to be long. I mean, considering 10 they were worth of crossing food. a continent on foot. Yeah. Um, but after 10 months, the ice essentially crushed their ship and they were forced to abandon it. Oh. And they were now on foot with their supplies being towed behind them inside their uh, their lifeboats. So they were using their lifeboats as like sleds, basically? Yeah. yeah. They were also... <laughs> sounds like the biggest bummer. So they're not on the continent. They're on ice on top of the ocean also. 
it's not open because it's cold, frozen, but sure. And they're 1,000 miles from the nearest human beings. Dude. <laughs> Somebody, like, we, we semi regularly tell stories about adventurers just in general, like people who are like, no, this is this is good. This is a good idea. I'm going to do this thing, and I'm just. I like, would like to die soon. Yeah, what bone? And take all of these people with me, please. Right. What bone in, the in your body? In the most horrific way possible. <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> what bone in your body is like? No, you know what? All of them, apparently. Not, I, I have a fireplace at home, a loving wife and children. <laughs> but you know what? Really sounds like a good fucking idea. I'm disturbed. I don't know why I decided to do this. <laughs> So they're now wandering around. Well, maybe not wandering, but they're walking on ice, dragging, I don't know how many lifeboats behind them, but all everything they own is in a lifeboat and they're dragging it across some godforsaken ice in the middle of Antarctica. There's got to be some, some degree of wandering around because you probably have a compass, but it's not like you have a map for what would be the frozen ocean. Right. And yeah, it's 1914. So they were relying on maps and compasses exclusively. They spent five months on foot before they finally reached open water. How many people froze to death in this process? Zero. Get the fuck They out still of had here. all 28 of them. Fuck that. So they spent 10 months on a ship together, floating around in some ice, then another five months on foot together before they finally dragged their boats back to the ocean. How did nobody murder anybody? Like that no. alone should have taken somebody out. So they were in very rough shape and it was now 15 months after they had left and they had, hadn't gotten anywhere. They'd been wandering on the ice for a year and a half. A bunch of the guys were sick because they were mostly eating raw meat. Ugh. And then they had to get into lifeboats and jump into the Ar- the Antarctic Ocean. Yeah, no. In the middle of, uh, it would have been October. Nah. After three days, they gave up. On the uh, three days on the ocean, and as in like choppy seas and not making any progress, they were having to chop ice off of the side of their boats so they wouldn't with an axe because they were getting stuck and they were, yeah, it was threatening to capsize their little boats because it would all build up on one side. You ever, um, you ever seen that gif of the guy in like the business boardroom that just like hates the meeting so much that he just jumps out the window? That would be that would be me (laughs) on that life raft, like. None of this is worth it. And I would go face first into frozen water and it'd be over really quick. His head fell off. <laughs> and it would just be done. So Insanity, I, I, man. I mean, some of the guys were close. By the time they docked after the three days in the ocean, uh, several of the guys were just wandering around talking to themselves. Many of them were shaking uncontrollably and occasionally trying to kill themselves. Well, and Shackleton was having to like forcefully keep people from killing themselves. Oh. I was too, I was too mm-hmm. right. You were very much <laughs> womp womp on the mark. It's, fu- <laughs> it's funnier when it's hypothetical. Well, it was very much real for these guys. Are they starting fires? You well, look, if you're not prepared to do the research, <laughs> Brian, why make the statement in the first place? I didn't make- I'm sorry. You're love- asking a question. I love-, I love how some episodes Spencer legit forgets about the soundboard. And then hey, some days, Hey, it's a good reason to tune in every week because am I going to remember to do my job runs. or am I not? <laughs> or am I going to do it too much to where it's just irritating? You never know unless you listen. Tune in next week yeah. on the What It Podcast. <laughs> I will Spencer fuck up this week's episode. <laughs> it's a different way every time. Uh, we're keeping you on your toes, guys. So they're now 28 guys. Uh, back on Frozen, uh, were they on land at this point? I don't know where they were. Anyway, Open. they're no longer at sea. 
Oh yeah, they they found some some little island and, and they they shacked up. <laughs> Sick. Sick. So they leave 25 guys on this little island. It was Elephant Island. It's got a cute name. Elephant or Elfin? Elephant. Elephant. Not like little people, but like <laughs> It's big just mammals the size of trunks. one elephant. <laughs> well, possibly. 28 dudes living on a singularly <laughs> elephant-sized island. So 25 of them stayed there. Shackleton and two other guys set off in one of the boats towards South Georgia Island, where they believed they could find help, and then come back to rescue the other 23 guys, or 25 guys. They sent three people? Yes. That sounds... Well, they were probably pretty sure they were going to die, so... I know, but I feel like your odds of survival would be a little... Well, I mean, I, I would assume they put whatever they could into one of the boats rather than take multiple boats. That probably wouldn't help your chances. I suppose there's that. They were at sea for 17 days before they finally reached South Georgia Island. But when they docked, they were at the opposite end of this island. So they, they push their little lifeboat ashore, but then have to cross 24 miles. It's mostly like the whole island. It's only there because it's a mountain range, like a, an ocean mountain range that at this point has popped up above land. Right. And they have to, for this entire time, cross different parts of this mountain range. So it's 24 miles, but it's up to 6,000 feet down to zero, back up down to zero. This sounds like an endless nightmare. Yes. Quite literally. Shackleton was in the group of three that they yeah, sent out. It was, it was him and two other guys. Okay. They walked nonstop for 36 hours. You're like, oh, we boated so bad. <laughs> <laughs> we boated the wrongest way we could boat. They <laughs> Dude, when Shackleton realized boated. where they were, <laughs> we, did, we did the baddest boat. That's going to be the meme next week. <laughs> Probably. Shout we out ba- out. We b- boated badly, we guys. Bo- we bad boats. <laughs> Dude, when Shackleton realized where they were, because I'm sure he was probably like leader of the expedition, he's the one with like the map and the compass. After their 19 months leading them up to this point, he's like, okay, guys, I have good news. (laughs) However, he's like, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we are definitely on the island we want to be on. The bad news is, I'm going to need you to walk 30 fucking miles through a frigid island Uh-oh. to get to where we're trying to go. <laughs> Jesus, have you used every sound in the soundboard that we've ever fucking used? No, just most. <laughs> Close. I got a few left. <laughs> that, that'll be your, like, that's your own PR you're trying to hit. Yeah. All right. So they have to walk 24 miles across a fucking mountain range to get Christ. to the other end of the island where they believe there is a whaling station because that's a thing you did in 1915. And they don't really, they don't have a path to get there. They're just straight up walking across a mountain range, assuming that on the other side is going to be what they're looking for. Some people. And they're doing this overnight because they went 36 hours straight. So at one point, Shackleton said they got to the peak of this part of the mountain range and had to start descending back down the other side. Okay. And it's dark out and they don't know where the fuck they are. Or what's a good route and what's a bad route, or if there is such a thing as a good route. Right. And they were so delirious that he literally just, like, with the other two of them, just jumped and slid, like, thousands of feet on their ass down the other side of this mountain. I mean... (laughs) Into the abyss. Just being like... Hey, if we're wrong, we die, and uh, uh, that is sort of welcome at this point. Anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, they're like, we don't fucking care. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, well, we didn't die. All right, right fine. 
And they eventually, after 36 hours walking, get to this whaling station. There are people there. They are willing to help them. And they send somebody in a real ship back to get the other guys. And all 28 dudes ended up surviving. Uh, After almost two years from when they left. (laughs) You know, you know, all those dudes went back to their respective, like, families, homes, villages, etc. And everyone was like, no fucking way. (laughs) Bro, we buried you like a year ago. Yeah, because they wouldn't have had, I don't think they had radio contact with anyone. I think they were just, they were just out there. I mean... Yeah, and 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 based on the hiccups, there's no way that they had planned to be gone for that long. If in 1914 someone tells you they're going to cross Antarctica on foot, you just assume they're dead, right? I suppose you probably say goodbye forever, or you know there's like a coin flip's chance they're going to die. Right. It would just be some castaway shit where you like, you fucking, <laughs> two and a half years later, you walk into your mom's house and you're like, hey mom, and she's like, What? No way. Or you, you come home and there's another dude living in your house who what? sold all your shit. No doubt. Sold your shit and is like <laughs> and raising a, and your kids. And a one-year-old in the living room. Yeah. And he's just <laughs> shitty. He just has bad taste in like everything. Yeah, fucked up teeth. Yeah. He listens to shitty music. So the reason that this is a, an example of the third man factor. <laughs> We're I'm, getting there. It's a great story on its own. It, but, it is. It's phenomenal. It's insane. Uh, he wrote a book about the experience because obviously other people thought that this was a crazy story and people should hear about it. And he said, um, in his book, quote, when I look back at those days, I have no doubt that Providence guided us not only across those snowfields, but across the storm white sea that separated elephant Island from our landing place on South Georgia. I know that during that long and racking March of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. And the two other guys who who were with him also independently stated that they thought there were four of them, not three of them. Mm. Shackleton later in life after the book came out was asked to elaborate on that. And he said, quote, none of us cares to speak about that. There are some things which never can be spoken of. Almost to hint about them comes perilously near to sacrilege. This experience was eminently one of those things. Whoa, that's a pretty intense way to say that. Yes. So you can S- being kind of, sacrilegious in nineteen fourteen, like that meant a lot more than it means now. Yeah, and I think you can kind of infer from that that he took it to be a I mean, with with that statement and then the part about providence guiding them, I think you can take away that he thought it was a religious intervention or a, a uh that God intervened to help them. A guardian angel of sorts. Yeah. As, as we said, um, which I mean, we'll get into some of the interpretations of this stuff later, but that was sort of the, uh, I don't know, the, the first and most widely publicized case of this third, or in this case, fourth man effect. Sure. Sure. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that any, even like biblical stories of guardian angels and moments of peril could be right. A, a version of this same thing, but yeah, I mean, but this was the one that kind of brought it to the forefront of Western, uh, knowledge. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Huh? Interesting. It's interesting how it, it's both like, like, okay. So you're gone for, like we said, like two two years years, and like, 
peril the entire time, right? Like, nothing's basically going right. You're dragging your fucking escape boats across a fucking frozen ocean. Yeah, they were doomed from the start. Right. They never even got to the continent where they were supposed to be doing the thing they set out to do. Right. And, like, all that shit is super interesting that that is what they were, like, faced with. But the idea that they would say so little about maybe the most interesting part of that like it's very interesting but it's pretty interesting that you referred to the fact that there was a person there that wasn't fucking there like wait uh, I'm gonna need you to time out on that part of the story and give me a little bit more detail right but the fact that they they hold it in such prestige is like a fucking super weird and interesting and that thing that could also be a sign of the times more than anything that any uh, behavior outside of the norm may have uh, jeopardized your chances of going on future expeditions or uh, if you, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't like, know. I'm not going on a fucking trip with Shackleton. That dude sees people that aren't there. Fuck that guy. And obviously the religious climate was, was different in a right. you know, hundred years ago too. But uh, he probably used it as a promotional tool. He's like, look, I got God on my side. <laughs> Come explore with me. Motherfuckers. God's got us. I'm unbreakable. <laughs> I am unbreakable. So, a more modern version of this story is the one I started to tell a while ago. Ron DiFrancesco. Jeez. Who was in the uh, South South Tower at the World Trade Center on September 11th. Yeah. And the North was hit first. And he was told initially to stay where they were, that they were safe, which is, I don't know how anyone would know that. And I'm definitely getting the hell out of there. If I just saw the building next to me explode. I would have been the fuck out of that city. The South Tower was then obviously also hit by another plane. He was on the 87th floor, which was sort of right in the range that was hit by the plane. It was like the 75th to 84th or something. Yeah. So he was above the impact area. And... So obviously to get out, he has to go down past these floors that have just been hit by a jet jetliner and are also like very much on fire. So he starts to go down and had to come back up because there was fire, smoke. It was just impassable. This is like in an emergency exit or a, not he's, an emergency exit, but just a, an exit stairwell. He's in a stairwell. Yeah. And... While they are in the stairwell, he and some of his coworkers and people from other floors trying to go down and get out, a bunch of the doors out of the stairwell to other floors locked so that they couldn't get back out. And it was a some there was some uh, process in place that was supposed to, in the event of a fire in the stairwell, contain it to that area so that yeah. if the smoke detectors went off in the stairwell, the doors would lock. There's a sprinkler system that would go off, put out the fire without it spreading to other parts of the building. Yes. But in this case, there were people in there when this happened, and they were locked in the stairwell. So his he couldn't even go back up to the floors that weren't affected. So he and a bunch of other people are in the stairwell, and they're just stuck. And there's smoke that's not going anywhere. There's fire. And... A bunch of people were just sort of giving up, saying, we're stuck. We can't go down. We can't go up. There's fire all around us. Uh, They're also inhaling smoke. People are starting to pass out. Well, I imagine, too, like with a 
with fire in a stairwell. You've got closed, locked doors. You got a lot of things working against you. You got, you're running out of oxygen quickly. I say, there's probably not any fucking air. Right. So he had actually sat down and given up saying, I guess this is it. And he said he heard a voice yelling at him by name to get up. And it started giving him words of encouragement saying that he could do it. And he, in addition to hearing the voice, he, he had a strong physical sense that somebody was with him. And he said, I don't, it, like, it felt like it physically picked me up and started moving me in the direction they wanted me to go. Yeah. Almost, uh, this goes back to the whole, like almost literally like directing. Yeah. Him, like guiding him through the, through the fire that they thought was originally impassable. So he is being like given, like you said, step-by-step directions basically on how to get out. So it's telling him, no, you have to go down and it's guiding him through the, the three floors below him that were on fire at times having to jump through areas that were literally burning. There's wreckage everywhere without knowing what's on the other side, just hearing this voice saying, no, go straight, turn left, jump through there, put your jacket up over your head so you don't get burned. Like very specific instructions, man. And it said it led him down the stairwell to run through this fire, to break through certain areas Quote, there was obviously someone guiding me. That's not where you would go. You don't go towards the fire. So he's saying it was contradicting his own instincts in in terms of what you would do in that situation. Yeah. If you approach an area on fire, you don't jump into it. Right. I mean, yeah. In most situations, you don't. I feel like if you've, if you've mentally exhausted your options of, I can't go back on a floor, up isn't getting me out. Yeah. Like, can't go under it, can't go around it, got to go through it kind of thing. Sure. But I know what you're saying. Like, it, it is not, it's, it's not logical to send people through that. At that point, though, the other side could have been out of the building. Like, you have no idea what you're dealing with. And there were large chunks of that building missing, you know? That could have right. been outside at that point. Right. No, it's true. And it's a, he said that eventually he get, got down to the lobby and made it out of the building seconds before the tower collapsed. And the, the impact of the tower collapsing actually like propelled him away from it. He was knocked out and woke up three days later in the hospital. And he so, was the last person to get out of the tower before it collapsed. He said there was like a massive fireball when the collapse happened. Yeah. And the, like, the, 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 like you said, the, the collapse and the fireball like basically blew him out of the building. Yeah. Hey, that one's so dark and so heavy, but it's like... There's a pretty interesting. I read about it in Geiger's book, but there's also a an interview with him on a National Geographic did some like mini documentary about this yeah, the third yeah. man uh, effect or factor. And he, I don't know how much later or how far removed from the event he was time wise, but he can like barely get through the story without <laughs> breaking. And it's just him talking to a camera about it. Yeah. I, um, I watched the angel effect. Uh, it's a, or yeah, the angel effect. It's a, it's a Nat Geo documentary. Okay. Uh, uh, I probably watched an excerpt from that. Maybe then. that's what it was. Yeah. Um, cause it was the same thing where he, okay. I, I just, it's like, it's like horrible to watch him tell a story cause it's obviously still so emotional. And I think it came out like in 2015, which means it was, 
you know, over a decade yeah. past it and when it happened. And well, and I, I mean, in that case, it's well, and a lot of these stories, someone with you has died, and we'll right. get we'll get to more of those in a, in a second. But it's I think that's part of uh, it's the most stressful situation you could possibly imagine. Oh my god, yeah, it, it both physically in that my life is immediately in danger if I do not do something, but also the, the mental and um, emotional stress of knowing I made it out, but thousands of other people didn't or my, the one other person with me didn't in some of these other stories. Right. Who I think often is a close friend or a loved one. Like, I mean, if you're in a, in a life or death situation with one other person, chances are that you know that person pretty pretty well. well. Right. So one of, one of those instances there's a uh, a guy named James. I don't know how to say his last name. Earl Jones? No, not that guy. So Savini? I don't know. S e v i g n y. S e v i g n y. Savania. Savini. Probably Savini. I would say Savini. James Savini. He was climbing the Delta Form, which is a a mountain in the Canadian Rockies, which has a pretty badass name. I was gonna say sounds. Sounds elite. <laughs> and it, it was him and just one other one other guy that he was climbing with, 1983. And they got caught in an avalanche and fell 2,000 feet back down this mountain That's in the middle of an avalanche. a lot of feet. James woke up an hour later, so he was unconscious for an hour, just lying in the middle of a, a newly made field of snow on this mountain. Right. Wakes up and goes to check on his climbing partner who was dead and James was severely fucked. He had broken his back in two places, uh, both of his arms, uh, severed nerves in one arm. So he, could, he had no use whatsoever of one of his arms. The other one was broken. He had torn ligaments in both of his knees, broken several ribs, broken his nose and lost several teeth. Okay. So both legs, both arms, his face and his back are just totally fucked. Which if you're keeping score is basically your entire body. Yeah, oh, and his ribs. So yeah. back, front, top, bottom, fucked. Yeah. He, after checking on his buddy, realizing he was dead and realizing his own predicament, decided that the best course of action was to lay down next to his buddy and die. That would probably also be my take. He, I mean, he can't walk. He can't use his arms. He's bleeding everywhere. Yeah. He's on still 20,000 feet up a mountain. Right. So as he lays down next to him and decides to die, he hear, he feels a presence and hears a voice saying, you can't give up. You have to try. And it starts telling him what he needs to do. He said, from that point on, I didn't make any decisions. I was just following instructions. The only decision I made was to lie down and die. See... Well, we'll get, we'll get more into this later. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. That, this is the last story I had, and then I, I want to get into some of the like, what and why and yeah, how. Yeah, I've got I've got one more quick one that sure. we'll tell, and then we can take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about all of the cool. what is actually happening here. So he starts following the directions of this presence, and he I thought this was kind of interesting. He said because the presence felt so empathetic to him, he thought that it was a woman, and called it huh. she. Interesting. Which is, we'll get into it more later, but sort of interesting in that one of the hypotheses about, or 
that try to explain what's happening in these moments is that it's your brain sort of uh, detaching from the immediate situation and sort of splitting into two different compartments. One that's dealing with the immediate, I'm going to die, my face is falling off, my legs and arms are broken situation. And another one that can deal with the higher level, like, okay, I need to be able to think rationally and work my way out of this. It's like actual literal disassociation. Yeah, you're disassociating from it. To have that other half represented by someone of the opposite sex would maybe imply that that's not what's going on. Sure. I I don't know. It it just seems like in in most cases, the third or second or whatever, the other presence is if it's a man having the experience, it's another man. If it's a woman having the experience, it's usually another woman. Right. This was one of the only ones I could find where it was not. Anyway, she tells him to follow the blood dripping from his nose and to keep moving even if he has to crawl. And he said it was telling him things like, get that down coat. So, like, he went and took the coat off of the other guy who was dead. Grab the water bottle. Make these arrows with the blood from your face in case somebody skis by. They'll know where you are. Holy shit. So he's, like, wiping blood from his face and drawing in the snow so that if somebody goes by, they can find him. Dude, that's so smart. I would not think of that if I was in that situation. When you're that fucked up, I wouldn't right. be thinking about anything other than, like, this Super duper fucking uh, sucks. Down. I should go down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Away from the avalanche. And it instructed, this presence instructed him to make his way back to the camp where they had started from, where he could then get help. And it was only a, mi- it was only a mile away from where he started. Okay. And it took him the rest of the day to get back because he was, was crawling. So, yeah. Yeah. And he only had one arm that was working. So he's pulling himself a lot of the time on the ground with one broken arm. His other one just, like, hanging behind him. I don't even understand the feat of human effort. And and that's the crazy part. Like, he doesn't either. He made the decision that he was dead. Yeah. (laughs) And then this all happened after that point. Someone else did this, yeah. So when he got, he made it back to camp after crawling for an entire day. And he, when he got back, he was so messed up, he couldn't open his sleeping bag because he didn't have a working arm. He couldn't light the stove because he didn't have working arms and he couldn't eat or drink anything because his face was so messed up and he couldn't get anything up to his face. Christ. So he's just sitting in this tent or like laying in this tent, assuming for the second time that, okay, now I die a mile away from where I was going to die instead. Now I die in something instead of outdoors. Right. Uh, Later that night, the voice tells him to call out like, yell for help and he does and there happen to be some skiers going by who hear him and Whoa. come to help him and he ended up surviving because these skiers were able to they had a radio with them or something and were able to get help and he said at that point he finally felt this presence leave once these other people arrived Whoa! yeah that's pretty crazy that, that one I mean, I, again, like... What was that guy's name again? Uh, James, whatever we decided his last name is, Savini. Savini. And what year did that happen? 83. 83. Of okay. the 19 variety. Of the 19 variety. Not 2083. The 19th, 83. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fucking weird, man. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess all of it probably could be explained through some sort of disassociation 
I mean, yes and no. It, it sounds really no, specific. Like the other ones, I feel like it, it's stuff he would still probably know. Like as a climber, you know, okay, he's dead and he has gear that would be useful to me. I should grab it. You know the way back to your camp, probably. Yeah, but it's the but it's the combination for me. It's it's less like it's less the what to do, and more so the something was like kicking my ass into gear and telling me like fucking fuck you. You're about to go do this, and then you're about to do this. Yeah, when you psychologically had already gone. This is it for me. I've made a decision to not live anymore. And something else is like pushing you into doing some of those things. It's an encouragement factor. That's kind of weird. Let's uh, let's get to one more story and then we'll come back with some of the, maybe the reasoning and what's actually going on scientifically. Yeah, the reasoning behind this is actually kind of my favorite part of it. So I'll just tell this one kind of quickly. Jerry Lininger was a NASA astronaut who uh, spent some time aboard the Mir. Uh, For those who don't know, that is a... It's basically... It's the Russian space station, right? Yeah, the Russian space station. Before we had an international one? Before we had the ISS. And um, it was, in its own right, sort of international, because they played host to other astronauts from other countries at the Mir. I think it was the only one at the time, right? Because it was it would have been in between Skylab and the space station. Yep. The, um, the ISS. Mir launched in 1986. Yeah. Um, so Jerry becomes an astronaut in, uh, in the late 80s. And in 1997... He gets assigned to do what at the time would have been the longest stay on a space station for an American astronaut. Which was how long? He, at the end of, by the end of his trip, he was up there for 132 days. Okay. So just, now the record is what, a year basically? I think it's a, almost like exactly just over a calendar year. Yeah. It's like three Almost exactly just over. That was that was really <laughs> almost. I was well. I was gonna say almost exactly a year, but then I was like, no, it's like it's isn't it three sixty eight uh, or yeah, something? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's about a year. Um. So the thing about Mir that is interesting to well to me and different from the ISS is it's actually much. It was actually much smaller. So there's only room for three people to be on it at any given time. Ugh. So. That sounds awful. Yeah. So <laughs> for Lin- 130 days or something, whatever you said. You said. So Leninger, yep. Uh, almost exactly just over 130 days. Approximately. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 132 days. Uh, so Leninger goes up in 1997 and he knows he's about to spend basically five months with two other Russian cosmonauts who know very little English and himself. Sounds like a, just a bad idea. Right. Here's what makes it a worse idea. <laughs> uh, since Mir launched in 1986, you got to imagine it was being built starting like, I mean, I don't know the actual date, but to build a fucking space station well in the 80s that. and send it up well before that. And to get funding and right. designs and yeah. Exactly. So by the time he actually got there in 1997, Mir was almost like 20 years old at the point, at that point. Somewhere sure. between 15 and 20 years old in terms of the parts they were using and the technology and the hardware and the software systems, etc. So apparently him and the two Russian cosmonauts on the Mir spent 
pretty much most of their days like solving emergencies. Oh, hi. Thanks for checking in. <laughs> still a piece of garbage. Daily update from the space station. I actually have written in my notes, <laughs> old, broken, shitty spaceship. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, but it was in the interview uh, In the interview that I watched with him, he, he basically says, we spent most of our days keeping that thing in space. Is this the one that started on fire? Started for on fire. Okay. Liter- literally, they woke up in the middle of the night one night or he whatever was, their version of night was. He was in space riding a literal dumpster fire around the planet. A literal space trash dumpster fire. Uh, they, they woke up in their sleep in the cabin, the actual... Uh, place where they lived inside the ship was full of smoke and they had to figure out the cause of the fire and solve it and not try to not die, uh, which they succeeded in doing. God bless him, man. I, I'm a, speaking of arduous, arduous, uh, tasks. And I would people not do who, well in that setting. No. So he said, basically most of their days was fixing the ship and, trying to do the experiments that they'd been assigned to do while they were up there for their stays. What were those? I mean, all hey, the- also while you're on fire orbiting the planet, uh, can, can you, you see how these seeds do in space? Can, can you like pour this shit into this shit and then like write some notes about what happens? Hey, does lettuce grow faster or <laughs> slower in zero G? <laughs> um, so needless to say, this dude wasn't fighting for his life. But his day in day it out sounds was like he might have been well yeah his day in day out was basically as stressful as you can get. He said they were doing spacewalks to fix outdoor parts of the mirror. Uh, things were breaking outside. They had like near misses and collisions with a couple of space things. Space things. Space trash. It sounds like they were space trash. Yeah right. So about. Three months into their stay, into their stay, his stay above uh, uh, on the mirror, he recounts a story wherein he was so he would be using the uh, treadmill like for an hour a day. That was yeah. his way of keeping himself sane. They, uh, well, I think it's also uh, required health and yeah, so that your bones and muscles don't stop working. At atrophy, there's the word atrophy to a unescapable point. Um, so he's on the treadmill, basically on his, on his last rope. And in the corner of the room, uh, he sees his father and it's really interesting to watch him actually tell the story because this dude is a NASA astronaut. So he's obviously wicked fucking smart. He's also a physician. Or he knows how to, okay. I was going to say, or he knows how to fly planes, but in this case, he's smart. He's he's a little bit of both. Not to say that you're not smart if you have to, if you know how to fly a plane, but you know what I mean. Yes. He's, he's, he is a, uh, a very heavily educated human being. And he said he sees his dad and his dad starts telling him how proud of him he is and how, since he was a kid, all he ever wanted was to be an astronaut and like, look at you, like, here you are, you're actually doing it. Don't, don't let it get you down. Don't let it beat you up. Like you got this. And he's, and he's like, I'm proud of you. So Jerry's dad had died seven years before he actually got, before uh, he became a space ghost, before he, (laughs) before he was sent up into, into space. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about this story because he's like it wasn't like the disembodied voice of my dad saying go get him tiger it was 
I looked into the corner of the room and there was like a stool there that my dad was sitting on and telling me these things. And when you watch him say it, he's like, <laughs> I wrote down a quote. He goes, I, I understand the logic of that. <laughs> like he's saying like, I get that this sounds super fucking crazy. He said, I'm a physician. I understand the logic of this, but he's in a- full defense. Yeah. Yeah. In full defense of what happened to him in that moment. And he said he, it was that moment that pushed him basically forward until the end of his mission above Mir that got him through. Um, so yeah, I, I tell that one because when you were saying the mind split potentially being female, I had never heard one that was um, the, the reincarnation of a family member or a, or a close those. person. Yeah. And I thought that was good context to add to some of the other ones that we're saying because some, it you know, they they run the gamut. And well, why don't we take a quick break and let's talk about the gamut that they run and where everything kind of potentially comes from, or some theories around some of that stuff. Sounds good. I will be right back. It's what. Let's talk about what causes all this crazy shit to happen. Third man or woman or family member. Or space ghost. Or fourth man or 29th man if you're (laughs) Mr. Shackleton's (laughs) group of band of weary travelers. Yeah. So I guess uh, let's just run through some possible and or partial explanations for what's going on. Number one, aliens. Yeah. Well... Do you actually have I an do, alien connection? Like Jesus yeah. Christ! I was making that joke because I thought there was no way. Okay, so one of, okay, we are going to start with aliens. I'll right. get there in the middle of a bunch of more actual information. Yes. So one of the uh, proposed explanations in Geiger's book is a disconnect between the two hemispheres of the brain. And yes. This was initially proposed by Julian Jaynes who suggested that until about 3,000 years ago, the human brain was actually more uh, more divided into the two hemispheres and that there were fewer connections between the two. Oh, okay. And that the right brain acted as sort of a, quote, God side, which appeared like an omnipotent being or authority figure giving advice and commands. Oh, interesting. To the left side, which appeared to listen and obey said demands. So we think now sort of like a... Uh, a more creative, looser, artistic side of the brain and a more organized, tactile, uh, practical side oh, of the brain. that's interesting. He's saying that that divide further back in history used to be much larger, and it was almost like ideas were created on one side and dictated to the other side. And executed on the other yes. side. And that this sometimes took the form of auditory or visual hallucinations giving these instructions. So one might sure hear it's it. Like, it's a disembodied voice in your head, basically. Right. And that that was ascribed to gods more often. Whoa, dude. Is that like potentially responsible for people's belief in God and like people dictating writing that's what, and shit that's like that? That's what he hypothesizes, yes. Whoa, that's fucking crazy. And he also suggested that one of the reasons that this... Uh, 
So basically he's saying we had a lower threshold for these hallucinations and that anything outside of your normal routine might be cause for one of these hallucinations because your brain is trying to process, I don't know what to do just by instinct or repetition in this situation. Sure. So I got to come up with some shit. It's coming up with this new idea that's being dictated to the other side of your brain via a quote-unquote hallucination of some kind. It makes sense, too, evolutionarily, that we would become... I mean, we've we've gotten better at spoken language over the course of human beings, and we've gotten better at, like, you know, our, our feats of athleticism have gotten better over the course of humanity, that, like, the brains would sort of... The hemispheres of the brain would sort of be getting better at connecting to each other over time. He posits that the biggest uh, reason for that change happening was widespread literacy. And that that would also align with that change happening about 3,000 years ago. And the ability to write down thoughts and accept that thoughts could come from other people and information could be transferred from sources outside of yourself. Sure. And then to also write down the word of God would have changed, would have maybe been enough to start rewiring some of those connections across the two hemispheres of the brain. Fascinating. Makes total sense. And, and he's saying basically that now in moments of extreme stress, the brain might still revert to that, or it might create a, a further divide between the two hemispheres and it might manifest as some of these quote unquote third man uh, situations for sure. Some of this stuff that, uh, that I saw in, in the angel effects documentary from Nat Geo talks a little bit about this, not, definitely not in the way that you just explained it, but they talk a little bit about this. And it makes sense to me too, that especially in moments of like, we've talked about like peril or intensity or whatever, that that very much so could be a defense mechanism where yeah. It's it's so much more useful for the brain to be like, hey, a lot of times our thoughts and our feelings and all of that are connected to our spatial, physical realm. But right now, I need to super not be connected to <laughs> those two things. I need my ideas to live in one place and my right. physical surroundings. Otherwise, we're both going down here. But yeah, for sure. You're dragging me we're down. Going, we're, going, <laughs> we're, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Left hemisphere, be quiet. Yeah. And also, too, you know, the concept of... Um, one of the one of the things that I read too about the the hemispheres of the brain is we we talk about the um, the right side being the one that's doing some sort of like the executing of the left side's ideas. Yeah, that um, I think it's the right side of the brain is also responsible for our sense of like positioning. Oh, as in so that might explain some of the understanding that like like when you the like, out of body type stuff, right? Because yeah. like we you know we. We take for granted the fact that when we look down at our hands, we realize that they're like our hands and that we are moving them in relationship to each other. Brilliant transition that you didn't know you were making. Tight. There's something called Dr. Strangelove. We're out here. We're good at this. We're out here. There's something called Dr. Strangelove syndrome. Which have you? Is that a movie you've seen? I've seen Doctor Strange Love. Yes. Okay. In his in his gloved hand that has a mind of its own. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a real thing that can happen to people who suffer brain injuries. No doubt. That makes total sense. I didn't know that, but I, that makes total sense. So people who have had brain injuries can have a limb. It's usually a hand that essentially takes on a life of its own and will not follow brain commands anymore. Whoa. So 
there's a documented case of a woman whose right hand was frequently tried to strangle her and she would have to fight it off with her other hand. Oh, I hate that so much. <laughs> like that is literally, I'm sure, the basis of multiple horror movies, right? Like that. And I to- mean, it certainly could be. If it's totally not. something that would have just been classified as possession 200 years ago. Right. But is actually like a brain body. Right. There's also, thing. there's also a dude whose left hand frequently engaged in quote, involuntary masturbation. Bro, you're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling right. anybody, bro. <laughs> Can't help it, man. I, I, Strong I, mind if it's out. <laughs> I'm not doing it. My hand's doing it. Dave, put your dick away. <laughs> You're not fooling anyone, Dave. Heck. Put your hack away. Heck. Dave. Heck. Dave, put your hack away. We have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, <laughs> led astray, run amok, and flat out deceived. It's true, Dave. It's true. You're deceiving everyone with your fucking... So the, the alien tie-in uh, in all of this, yeah. So... Uh, Dr. Michael Persinger, who we've talked about on the show before, I think it was in the near-death experiences episodes. Yeah, yeah, right? it was, it was, yep. He is, uh, st- he studies something that he calls neurotheology and has created something that he calls the God helmet, which is a modified motorcycle helmet with electrodes inside of it. He's a, he's a neuroscientist at Laurentian University in Ontario, Canada. Sweet. And the God helmet can induce what, people describe as religious experiences or sensed presences by stimulating certain parts of the brain with magnetic fields. And it has, according to Persinger's research, created a sensed presence in 80% of participants. So the alien tie-in is that one person who went into this, so they put him in a, in a dark room with no visual or auditory or any sensory input of any kind and just ask them then to describe what they're experiencing. And one person said, quote, I began to feel the presence of people, but I could not see them. They were along my sides. They were colorless gray looking. And I knew I was in the chamber, but it was very real. And he has, he has even said from himself, basically that like he, he believes in the, not just the possibility, but the probability that like people's accounts of having interactions with ghosts or I mean, aliens. It, it, it aligns with the abduction stuff very closely. For and, sure. I mean, how often have you heard they were at the foot of the bed or along the bed and I couldn't quite see them, but Shadowy I knew they were there. kind of. Or... Yeah, the, the colorless, gray-looking, like nondescript, missing features. I right. mean, that's something that comes up really often is I, I couldn't quite see it or... I could only make out parts of its face. Yeah, or which is, it's, that's so fascinating It didn't want to me. me to see it or, yeah. you know, all of that stuff. It's so much more so the, um, having like a, almost like a gut instinct feeling that it's mm-hmm. there. It's but a like not, presence. You don't see it, but right. you know it's there and right. you can sort of locate it spatially, but you can't see it for some reason. Right. And like this person said, I couldn't see them. And then the next sentence is they were colorless and gray looking. Which totally So you're getting is, a visual image without actually seeing them somehow? I mean, it makes sense if, if it is a... Well, I mean, if grays are telepathic, then duh. <laughs> right? That's what you were going to say? Aliens. Aliens. <laughs> but so 
Persinger hypothesizes that there is a link between hallucinations and electromagnetic disturbances. And he thinks specifically that the right hemisphere of the brain is more susceptible to this. And what he's doing with the, the magnetic fields on inducing them in people is uh, inducing what he describes as a micro seizure that results in a sort of altered state. Mm. So it's somehow throwing off the brain's response to stimuli where it's then entering this altered state and perceiving things that are not actually there. Right. Um, he also thinks that these altered states and these electromagnetic disturbances can occur naturally. They don't have to be induced in the way that he's doing it. Sure. And specifically with the, a lot of these cases happen either at extreme elevation or near one of the poles. Mag and, magnets? And, well, he's he's hypothesizing that solar wind at certain locations and at certain times of the year could actually create a strong enough magnetic field. That it could fuck with your brain? Yeah. Huh. So if you're in at the South Pole in March, you're getting bombarded by solar wind without realizing it because you can't see or feel it. Right. And... That combined with the isolation and the repetition and the lack of input, and that's another thing I want to get to is, and we talked about it a little bit on the on the, the Patreon episode, but is he thinks that could be enough to induce these hallucinations? It's almost like um, it's almost like the Northern Lights, right? Like the further north you go, the easier they are to see. I mean, it's, it's literally the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, another hypothesis is that. And these probably all overlap to create whatever this is. Yeah. But the, the idea that the brain when not stimulated externally will sort of create its own content because sure. most, many of these cases happen some in the situation where like with uh, Shackleton, he had been on a sheet of ice for two fucking years. Right. He hadn't seen anything different. He hadn't heard anything different. Right. He hadn't read a book. He hadn't listened to music. He probably went days at a time without even speaking to another person because right. you're walking across a sheet of ice with two guys. Right. And you're not seeing anything. You're not hearing anything. You're not, you're not being challenged in any way other than put your foot in front of your other foot to where the brain might start creating information on that sort of blank slate. Sure. Just to keep itself working. And I totally, and I can see how the whole, like, you're, you're almost, I mean, I don't know if schizophrenia is the right word, but like, you're almost, you, you would probably start to hear the normal thought track that we all have in our heads as like something different than we're normally Dude, used I, to hearing. I spend because of just what I do for a living. I spend a lot of time by myself. Like yeah. most days I spend most of the day by myself Yeah, and I'll catch myself once in a while, like saying stuff out loud just to myself. I mean, we all do that to some extent. <laughs> y'all if i could if i could show you the face spencer just made of me it was like a well <laughs> yes and i've had to like tell myself not verbally to like rein it in once in a while because if anyone were to be observing me during the day they might think i'm fucking nuts see but i i have to imagine that 
that is that's societal in nature. I mean, we yes. use language to oh, think and speak and But when you take that away for long periods of time, I'm sure like we are inherently social, we are inherently verbal yeah, at this point. Exactly. And and so many of these happen in moments or in long periods of time where that has been removed. Right. Like the isolation the, factor. Right. There there are a lot of these stories from people at sea for long periods of time, especially by themselves. And it I would imagine that's got to be pretty similar to being in a in an Arctic or Antarctic situation where yeah, no you're doubt. seeing nothing but open ocean for days at a time. For sure. You're not speaking to anyone. You're probably not sleeping a lot. You're probably not eating no. enough. No. Your body is stressed in so many ways, and then it's also not getting any input for days at a time. Right. So it says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little dance up here and make my own fun. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole idea with a sensory deprivation tank is that people, I mean, people have said in less than an hour that they have started hallucination hallucinating just by being in a tank of water a dark by themselves tank of water yeah, a dark soundless tank yeah of water so that's another possible explanation yeah uh sleep deprivation we talked about a little bit but like if you're climbing a mountain you're not really sleeping much yeah if you're hiking for 36 hours straight you're obviously not sleeping i don't know what the longest have you ever What's the longest you've ever gone without sleep? Um, we talked about this before. I don't think we have. Okay. I would say the I I've done a full all nighter, and then done like a eight to ten hour day after a full all nighter. So probably like, I w- I guess I would say thirty six hours ish. Okay. It's bad. It's really bad. Your body feels like it's just like dying. Yeah. If you, I mean, it's different for each person, but I like the, you know, that last summer in like middle school or high school where you don't really have anything you have to do, but you're old enough to like go do stuff on your own, like 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there where like you don't really have a job yet. You're not worried about like college or whatever is next. You're just like a dude with three months to not do anything. Right. And and once you've played enough video games and basketball and like right. night you just, games you with your friends. Literally nothing but time. Yeah. So I and a couple friends decided in one of those summers, it was probably like eighth grade. You're gonna see how long you could go. Yeah. <laughs> All of us together and we were gonna spend the whole time together. So just like <laughs> like let's get fucking weird, guys. Right. So, you know, we figured it'd be like two or three days or four or whatever. Four you thought you were gonna go for four days without sleeping? I mean, people have. I mean, people have, but I don't... So, I got to, like, 50 hours. You got to 50 hours? And was definitely, like, starting to hear and see things. After two days. Yeah, if for sure. If you're sailing across the ocean by yourself or hiking for days at a time and you, you know, okay, maybe you don't sleep for two days straight, and then the next night you sleep one or two hours. Or, like, even five at that point and is then not you, enough to, like... And then the next night you don't sleep, and then the next night you sleep... Two or three hours, like right. Sleep deprivation and hallucinations are very much a real thing. I definitely feel you. I just, I also feel like there's too many of these stories that don't have that totally agree piece in place totally for it to be enough for me to be like. I mean, like, I'm I'm sure it could be a contributing factor to a larger, you know, schism in the brain or something like that. But I don't think any one of these things that I'm laying out. You're Explain saying the whole picture. It's a cocktail. Maybe all of them together do. Cocktails. Perhaps. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, 
I thought it was interesting that so many of them happen at altitude. Oxygen deprivation stuff? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, if you combine extreme stress with extreme oxygen deprivation and extreme sleep deprivation and shitty nutrition and extreme exertion for days at a time, Mm -hmm. maybe. I did read about something today called cerebral edema, which... Why does that sound familiar? I don't know. Maybe I stumbled on it. Go ahead. Anyway, uh, at a certain point of oxygen deprivation, the brain actually starts to swell because there's, I don't, I don't exactly understand the science. We need Chris back, but <laughs> for whatever reason, the brain tries to compensate for the lack of oxygen by increased blood flow. So more blood, even with less oxygen in it, could maybe compensate. Right, I think it's like you need it's like you need ten Coors Lights to get as drunk as you need with like four Surly Furiouses. Sure, nailed it, (laughs) nailed it. And the initial symptoms of high altitude cerebral cerebral edema commonly include confusion, uh, loss of muscle control extreme fatigue and quote an altered mental state. See, okay, but I got I'm sorry, I got to say something because <laughs> that's I kind feel, of the point. Here. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> like I think the the thing for me about this stuff and I know you're saying these things are all combined, but the thing about the altitude and the sleep deprivation and and all this stuff is like you know one of the the symptoms of all these things are like like you said like altered mental state or hallucinations but for me the 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 biggest thing is that all of these hallucinations are so specifically similar well the ones that you hear about in books about this topic sure but they're also pulling a thread that is a thread i mean it's not not a thread right. so I, I don't sure. know. Yeah, there, there are definitely a bunch of similar stories, but there are also 7 billion people, you know. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is when you say... You don't hear about... Because there, there, there are, all, are also stories about people who hallucinate and have negative experiences, like the dude who thought that he was on land after sailing for days by himself and just walked off the side of his boat and died. Because it's well, not a fun book to write about people who have killed themselves after hallucinating in extreme situations. Well, right, but that's but to me again though, like that's also different because that's what I, I guess that's what I mean is that's a hallucination that you you saw that you were on land in the same way that in the desert you would see water. And more, what I'm saying is the level of specificity around seeing or feeling a specific disembodied presence in my space that was giving me instruction or encouragement is a little bit more. It's a little more direct than... Yeah. There are also people who have hallucinated voices telling them to do not helpful things in those moments. Well, like kill the guy who's with you. Sure. Those sorts of things have happened also. Sure. But yes, there, there, is, there does seem to be uh, a, a commonality that probably isn't just due to chance. Yes. That's maybe more what I'm getting at. But it, I, also, I, I don't know. I, I struggle with that question related to a lot of the topics that we we talk about on the show, like the near-death experiences or the UFO stuff, or like why do we, if it is a hallucination or if it's not a quote-unquote real thing that's happening, why do we all experience it in such a similar way? Sure. Or why do so many people have such similar experiences? Right. But we all also have the same hardware. You know, like we all have a brain 
These are all mostly stories from North America. Yeah. We have a similar cultural experience. We have a, a similar kind of frame of reference in, in which we all work. Right. Is that enough for, you know, 20% of us to have a similar experience and then a guy to find enough similar experiences to write a book, a 250 page book about it or make a hour long documentary about it? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, but I, I guess maybe, but also like we, I feel like we allow for scientific data to be meaningful with less, you know? No, elaborate. Uh, societally, I feel like we allow for significance to show through with fewer stories than we have that are this similar in uh, around like other topics. Well, that's, that's the hard part though, is that it's, they are just stories, right? It's, it's, sure. it's purely based on that one person's personal experience. There's no external yeah, but, validation to any of it. Well, no, but I, I mean, I think the, you know, and, the, and this is probably both a reflection of like who I am as a person, but also, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. When I see people telling these stories, when, like when you watch Jerry Linninger talk about seeing his father on the space station, like the amount of emotion that overcomes him in that moment of being like, I, do, I cannot explain this. It is super insane to me. I know what I'm saying is wild right now. Yeah, but of but course that's what you're going to see. So though. intensely. Of course that's what you're going to see. It would be more convincing to me if he saw a person he had never seen before in that moment. Sure. Of course, in a moment of stress, your father who encouraged you to be an astronaut and to persevere through exactly a situation like this is going to be who you're going to see. But same with like Ron and all these people, like their, their accounts of these things to me are pretty convincing. I mean, I, I think those, those ones are like where you don't know who the presence is and it's actually giving you information. Those are way more interesting to me than basically I had a waking dream in a really stressful situation, which sure. is what I forget the dude's name, but the astronaut's situation is. I can see that. Yeah. I can see what you're saying. I, Ron shouldn't have had the information that he had to get out of that situation. Right. And somehow he did. Right. And he's attributing it to a voice that he didn't recognize and had never heard before. Right. That's way more interesting to me than I saw. My dad came to me in a dream. Yes. Same, same, same with the dude who knew when to yell out to catch exactly. skiers nearby him exactly. to get saved. Even, I think Ron's story is even more interesting than that because it could be, I mean, he, you're on the, the side of a mountain with no other people around sound travels in weird ways. He could have heard someone skiing or heard someone speaking without actually, you know, and in that moment of pure delirium. Sure. But getting access to information that you shouldn't have in those moments is, is what makes me think maybe there's something actually external happening yeah. rather than it's just your brain compartmentalizing or disassociating in term in time in a time of extreme stress. I think another interesting aspect of this is um, like, and maybe we deserve to do a whole show about it, but like the concept of hyper strength is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, I, I, I was just going to make a dumb comparison to super soldiers. <laughs> 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 but like, but like hyper strength is another one of those things where under, you know, heavy duress or yeah. intense situations, human beings have been known to take on feats of strength that are like generally are perceived those, as impossible. Those, I'm just asking cause I don't know, not trying to be skeptical or anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Are there like well-documented cases of that? The I, only the only context I've ever heard it in is in an urban legend type of way. Um, like some mom lift a bu- lifted a bus off of her kid because right, her kid was dying or yeah. going to get hit or. Um, I I don't know. I I should say I don't know. I just know that it's like. It's also not really helpful to our conversation right now. But no, I, I guess the 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 I was just trying to draw a comparison to. It wouldn't be the first time that we had maybe like documented or had stories of people saying like, I, in a moment of, of like faced with a life or death intense, like extreme duress situation, I was able to do or be something that I am not normally able to do or be. Yeah. And, and and that, and even if that, and even if that thing is a disembodied thing for whatever reason, it's in disembodied. I also think, you know, like you said, like access to information you shouldn't have access to coming from the outside. Like part of me goes, is that it? Or does your, you know, does your brain peak? Like, does your brain legitimately peak and go, I, I'm either going to die or I'm going to figure this out. And then when those are your choices, you end up figuring out more than you think you are capable of figuring out. And I want to go back to that thing with Ron's story for a second. Like we don't know that he quote unquote, figured it out. He may have just been much more willing to take risks. Well, and that's kind of what I was happened to work out. And for all we know, a hundred other people took similar risks being guided by disembodied voices and it didn't work out. And we'll just never hear those stories. For sure. Obviously. So like, like, like in, and in that situation, it's like, you know, it was his option. You, you're either going to, you're either going to die up here or you're going to get some burns and you're going to push your way through a stairwell fire and it's going right. to fucking suck. But that's air B bro. And he right. was like fucking B and he, yeah. and he, and he pushed through it. But, but I guess the, the thing that's interesting to me too. And again, this is goes back to like the, the overlapping characteristics is this whole, everybody says how like, nurturing and encouraging and like positive this voice is and to me i feel like every internal voice i have in one of those situations is just going to be like ah! like it's it's <laughs> well, just going to be straight fucking fear okay, though, but and, again you're not going to hear those stories because if if james if james's internal disembodied voice when he lies down next to his buddy to die tells him yeah this is where you die suck it jim you don't hear the story. Sure. Yes. And no one, and even like no one writes that story, even if you do hear it, because what a depressing book. No one's going to buy it. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Like, yes. I, and I think when you're relying solely on anecdotes for this information, also from the person who's experienced it, I, I don't know how reliable that is either in terms of, it's all being filtered through you and your experience in that moment of extreme peril. And there's no other rational explanation because for someone like Ron, the the idea that you were just as likely to die as the thousands of people that did, but for some reason you didn't is a hard thing to deal with. Yeah. But, but I also like, I hear you, but I also go directly back to like the bo- the brain's the brain's efficiency mode 
mm-hmm. of this is more efficient for me to yeah. be able to disassociate and by disassociating in extreme situations I also feel like there are two people in my head instead of one. I mean, I think like, that makes the most sense to me. I think if you if you couple that with these are situations where we're already more likely to hallucinate because we're at an extreme altitude or we haven't slept in three days or right. we're near some electromagnetic field that we're not aware of. Sure. When you couple that with, I think you're you're on track with the the disassociation and it's the only the only efficient path to success right. is to compartmentalize those two parts of your brain. I think that's probably what we're dealing with here. And then when it's filtered through people who are religious or people who are more prone to thinking about things in a certain way. It's God or it's an angel or... Or people who have a loved one who has died that encourage them to become an ass. You know, it gets yeah. filtered through whatever yeah. your personal experience is before we ever hear about it. Sure. I think that's probably what we're dealing with. No doubt. The 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 dissociation thing too for from like an efficiency standpoint also kind of reminds me of the whole like like when you are injured or your body's like freezing to death, your body knows to shut off blood flow to specific parts of the body as a way to preserve organs. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing that's well documented that we don't do consciously or intentionally, but is is designed you to keep your, us alive. Your brain and your heart more than you need your feet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your brain, your so your your brain will tell your body to do that it, as a as a method of self preservation. And I can like to enter low power mode. You're <laughs> yes, twenty percent. Yes, I would. Yes, very much so. <laughs> if it means I come out alive the other side, but I I think like to me the the brain sort of separating from something that's really really hard physically and mentally and letting the mental like direction take over and say no 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 you're you're not you're not pushing your feedback back this way we're pushing feedback this way forward like that to me feels like a very um loose if not like tight connection to what what our brains and bodies are willing to do in in peril yeah we out of here we got to go. We got to go. It's been great. Um, whatifpodcast.com is always high at whatifpodcast.com if you want to hit us up. At whatifpod if you want to tweet us. The, the Twitter feed's been nitro lately, uh, <laughs> so keep keep hitting us up with that stuff. Um, I and have, also... Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. I, I have a favor to ask of our listeners. Tight, 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 tight. I think in year two of, of What If Pod... I have two goals on the, on an audio front. Let's go. We haven't even discussed this, so let's hope Spencer and I's goals are aligned. Nice. So goal number one is that I want to compose a theme song for us. Um, if you like or hate that idea, I, I'm open to feedback. If you guys like hearing different music every week at the start of the show, let me know. If you like the idea of, of, a, of a what if pod theme song, let me know. There's also a middle ground there too, where we could have a theme song that opens every episode, that's and then I'm we could have different music throughout. Yeah, the that's episode. what I'm saying. That's what okay, I'm suggesting. Yeah. For those I of you who don't just know, play one song at every break and at the top <laughs> and end. And yeah. for those of you who don't know, Spencer has composed uh, like 99.9 percent of the music that has gone into our uh, yeah show. When Sims was on, I played Shredder's songs. Yes, and I, when Mason was on once or twice, I played some of his songs. But otherwise, it's my stuff. Yep. Uh, okay, so that's part one. Part two is I think we should retire British lady. Yeah. yeah. So if we have some of y'all love her and some of y'all hate her, and we've heard both. So. Oh really? I haven't I haven't really heard any feedback on British lady. I just think like 
you know, we could switch it up. Somebody on Twitter it's was like, British lady needs to go. And okay, somebody, great. Somebody, well, then fuck yeah, I agree with you, Twitter but, person. But somebody also was like, I love British lady. Why would you say that? So well, I don't our know. old episode, you know, if you want to hear our old shit, buy our old albums. Hey, it's out there. Hova. Uh, so before we like find, you know, or pay Ric Flair $1,000 to record some drops for us. Which is a thing we discussed doing. Or, yeah, so I guess it's twofold. Patreon.com slash what if podcast if you want us to pay Ric Flair to do our intro. If you have any reasonable suggestions for who should do some voiceover for us, that's A. Uh, 2B is if you want to record some stuff and send it to us, uh, I would definitely consider that as well. I'm sure we got a lot of people with microphones around that listen to our show. A lot of people with cool voices. Kind of like how Radio Lab does their whole like you can read the read the credits or whatever. But we have I our I didn't know they did that. But yeah, I like that. But we have like listeners do our intros and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that would be so fun. And then you could shout out your own, you know, shout out your Twitter. Like this is so and so on Twitter, and I just want to say you're listening to the Woody Podcast. Sure. Yeah. All right, let's or do if this. if you want to just like take the British lady copy exactly and read that, and yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll throw your voice in there. Let's say uh, if you would be interested in doing that, email us at hi at whatifpodcast.com. Yeah. And uh, the British lady intro is not that hard. You could write that down in, in a second. And you could... Uh, you are listening to the What If Podcast. I don't even know what it is. I've heard it 10,000 times. <laughs> I think it's legitimately like, you're listening to the What If Podcast with Spencer Worth Davis and Ryan Corporate. Yeah. And then we have a bunch of like interstitials and stuff no, too. No, I just but- play one now, actually. Maybe that's why people are getting annoyed. I oh. just play the one at the end that says, uh, email us and we'll be back next week. That Well, that could do it too. Yeah. All right, so um, let us know yeah. if you want me to write a modern X Files theme for us, and uh, dude, every you just convinced everyone. You said modern <laughs> X Files, everyone was like, "Fuck yeah, that's sounds tight as Go shit." Going Mark Snow in this bitch. <laughs> uh, but yeah, email us or tweet us about that stuff if you have opinions about it. And we out of here. We'll see you um, next week. This episode's long as fuck. Wait, Goodbye. I got to do one more announcement. Yes, he, he Spencer tried to run away. We out of here! We out of here! We out of here! I have, and this is maybe, I should have opened the show with this. <laughs> oh boy. Next week, we will have Robot Grandma t-shirts. The design is finalized. It is in my inbox. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> You're going to hear about it when they're up in the shop, but we have a finalized design from... Oh, Lord! Uh, Grimschket. It's at G-R-I-M-S-H-K-E-T. Uh, Elijah Grimm has been uh, crushing it and finalized a robot grandma t-shirt. That's the worst name I ever heard. So, no, it's not. We love you, Elijah. Thank you for everything. Um, And, uh, yeah, so in the next seven days on our website, uh, you will be able to order a robot grandma t-shirt. What up? Show me what you got. All right, now we can say farewell. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the What If Podcast. Learn more at www.whatifpodcast.com.